have all probably at some point fallen victim to someone's empty promises to us, uh, whether it be companies or personally. Uh, if you think about it, that's all the devil in the world have is empty promises. TV advertisements that tell us that a certain type of alcohol will make us happy and popular. Uh, guidance counselors that tell you being rich and successful will bring you happiness. Hollywood sells the idea that fame and fortune will bring fulfillment. Wall Street tells you that it's money that will bring satisfaction to your life. But it doesn't take us long if we live our life that we figure out that the world's promises are empty. We see the effects of alcohol on our friends and family. Uh, we find out that money and success does not give us inner peace. We see the addictions and the suicides of the rich and the famous. Uh, we, we see that it provides a lack of fulfillment in their life. We discover that all the money in the world cannot buy what is really important. Satan always operates exclusively on advertisement and on promises. <clears throat> For 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed in an angel of light. But his promises always come up empty. God, however, is just the opposite. When he makes a promise, you can bank on it. You can put your, uh, all your marbles in that basket. 2 Peter 1, 4, Whereby have, are given unto us exceeding and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Oh, on Easter, instead of empty promises... God gives us some promises from the empty. So let's get into it this morning. Starting in Mark chapter 16, verse number 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Verse 2, and very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There you shall see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly, and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity. Each and every one of these precious folks that are here this morning, may we see something from your word that will be a help to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look today at three promises from the empty. We see an empty cross. We see an empty tomb. And we see empty burial clothes. The, the fact that each of these is empty gives us different aspects of promises from God that I want to look at this morning. We see, first of all, the empty cross. Now, Golgotha is the biblical name of the place that Jesus was crucified. Uh, it is a small hill just outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem. It's early morning. Jesus is battered, bruised, dehydrated, exhausted from a sleepless night and he is taken to stand before Pilate. In response to the mob, Pilate releases the wicked criminal Barabbas, and he condemns Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Preparations for the scourging are carried out. This is a horrible, horrible punishment. In fact, it was against the law to scourge a Roman citizen uh, by the Roman government. It was so bad. Only slaves and traitors could be scourged. 
The prisoner is stripped of his clothing. His hands are tied to a post above his head or to a, uh, a, a ring that's on the other side of a rock that he has to lay over. The, there's two Roman legionnaires that stand on either side of him and they will alternate the blows. They use a whip called the Cat of Nine Tails. It has a, a handle and then it has six or seven foot, uh, nine, six or seven foot leather thongs. On the end of these thongs are a piece of lead that's kind of like a sinking, uh, a sinker you would use for fishing. And then on the end there is also sharp pieces of bone, uh, sheep and cattle bone. The idea is that when that whip lands on the back, the sinker, the lead will sink it into the skin and the bone will tear away as the whip is retracted with only one blow. Uh, one doctor said that it would give enough wounds that it would, cause, uh, to, it would take 180 stitches with each fall of the whip. And Jesus was whipped again and again and again. And as they fell on him, it turned his back into an unrecognizable mass of tissue. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied, allowed to slump to the ground. The Romans thought this was a time for a great joke, and so they put around him a robe around his shoulders. They placed a stick in his hand for a scepter. They took some thorns, the common thorns that you see all around Israel. They're about an inch and a half to two inches long. They fashioned a circle with these uh, branches of thorns and they placed them on his scalp and then beat them into his scalp with a reed. Again, you would have much bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas in your entire body. They mock him. They strike him across the face driving the thorns still deeper into his scalp. Finally, tired of this sadistic game, they tear the robe from him, and you can only imagine the agony that would produce as well. At Golgotha, or actually before that, the heavy beam of the cross is tied to Jesus' shoulders. The procession, Jesus and his execution detail, begin the slow journey up to Golgotha. It's about a third of a mile. The weight of the heavy beam together with the blood loss and wounds already suffered, were too much. It was too much of a struggle uh, to be pushed to this type of endurance. And so another man named Simon is compelled to help our Savior. At Golgotha, a beam is placed on the ground. Jesus is thrown backward against that beam. The legionnaire feels for the depression just behind the wrist. Uh, if in, the, in Jewish uh, they considered the hand all the way behind where your wristwatch would be. So this was all part of the hand. And they would put, drive a nail right in that wrist where the two bones come together so that it might support his weight. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep, deep into the wood. He moves to the other side and does the same thing. The beam is then lifted and placed into place on top of the post. There reads a sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The one foot is then put behind the other foot and a nail driven through both feet into the bottom part of the cross. And with, the, with, with those nails, that is what he has to support his weight on to be able to breathe. As the arms fatigue and great waves of cramps would sweep over his muscles, relentless throbbing pain we can't even imagine. These cramps come with the... With them come the inability to push himself upward. He's hanging by his arms, his pectoral muscles being unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He has to fight to raise himself up in order to get even one breath. Carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs. The bloodstream 
and the, uh, in the bloodstream as well, and the cramps uh, would then partially subside, but intermittently he is able to push himself upward and exhale and bring in some life-giving oxygen. We are talking about hours and hours of this twisting, cramps, partial, partial asphyxiation, and searing, unimaginable pain. Soon he realizes the end is coming. With one last surge of breath, he presses his torn feet against the nail, straightening up his legs. He takes a deep breath. He utters the final cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He then, the Bible says, gave up the ghost. Can I tell you, friend, Jesus gave his life. No man took it from him. He makes that clear. To make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drives a spear into his side. He takes a, uh, out of this wound comes a uh, blood and water. This is post-mortem evidence that Jesus did not die of suffocation, but of heart failure. Now this was all a few days ago. The ladies are thinking about that as they are walking in what we just read. Now it's early on the third day after that. It is Sunday morning. The dawn is just beginning to break. The women are on their way to the tomb. It's the tomb where Jesus was buried. They've been walking now for about half an hour. The conversation, no doubt, is limited as they're still reeling from shock because of what they had seen three days prior. The task before them is not a pleasant one. It's going to be to anoint the body of Jesus whom they love. As they come to the top of a rise in the path, the way I picture it in my mind, this isn't in the scripture yet, just a picture that I have, is that they would stop because the Bible says in John 19, 11, that in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein never a man was laid, there laid they Jesus. So the, the tomb where he was laid was in the garden where he was crucified in the place. And so it's entirely conceivable that as they walk, they can look off into the distance and see a gruesome reminder of what happened just a few days ago. This was uh, the day after the Sabbath. It's probable they would not have taken the crosses down yet. And so silhouetted against the early sky is a reminder of the horror of what they've just witnessed. The one in the middle, that one would hold their attention. That's the one that held Jesus. It is stained with the blood of our Savior. Uh, the top of the cross from the crown of thorns that was pushed on His head. The center going down uh, from the... Uh, the blood on his back, the end of the cross on the outside would be the blood from his hands and all the way down the bottom where his feet were pierced. They just could not believe that Jesus was really dead. And friend, he was dead. He was not faking. He was not in a coma. Uh, he was, uh, no, there's no question that Jesus was dead. The Romans knew it. The Jews knew it. These women knew it. And that's why I want you to see the cross this morning. Jesus really did die on that horrible cross. But today, it is empty. Empty of Jesus' body, but full of God's promises. Hallelujah. Full of hope for you and me. Because the cross is empty, we have a promise of the forgiveness of sins. Oh, what a wonderful thing to see. You see, the fact is, all of us have sinned. Every one of us. You and me. Uh, we've sinned, the person sitting beside you, the person sitting behind you, especially the person sitting in front of you. We've all sinned, amen, every single one of us. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
The only person that ever came and lived a sinful life, a sinless life was the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But it is because of our sin, don't miss this, because of your sin and because of my sin that we are just as guilty for driving those nails into the hands of Jesus as those burly Romans were. For it is for your sin and for my sin that Jesus hung on that cross that day. What a great promise. You see, that is the problem. According to God's law, the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sinneth, it must, must die. Because we have sinned, we deserve God's judgment and His punishment. We deserve eternal death in hell. But when you look at that empty cross, it's a reminder of God's promises that we can be forgiven. On that cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah! Can I tell you today, as horrible as that cross was, because of the fact that it is empty, we have a great promise from God that our sins can be forgiven. No one else. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not Muhammad, and not Buddha. None of them have ever lived a sinless, perfect life. None of them could pay for your sins and mine, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, uh, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When Jesus Christ breathed His last, He cried out, It is finished. Amen. It is not something you have to earn. It is finished. The price has been paid. On that cross, we see what the world thought of our Savior. They killed Him. But we see what the Savior thought of this world. He died for you and me. And oh, praise God that we can see forgiveness for our sins. On that empty cross, His blood was spilt on your behalf. Because of the work that Jesus did on that cross, you and I can now stand forgiven. That is the first promise we get from the empty of Easter. Secondly, look at the empty tomb. We get now back to the ladies who are on their way to the tomb. They're continuing their path, and as they go, one of them wonders aloud, who's going to move the stone for us? They remember that, but by the way, they had reason to be concerned. The stone that was in front of the tomb was a large boulder. Some people think it could have weighed as much as two tons. On top of that, it has posted with guards. The Romans sealed it so that nobody could go in or out without permission. And they didn't know what was going to happen, but they walk on. Suddenly, they felt an earthquake, Matthew 28, 2. Frightened, but a few minutes later, they continue on their way. As they approached the burial site, they came on something that surprised them. As they started to come up toward the tomb, the rock's not in front of the tomb at all. In fact, the rock has been rolled aside. The tomb is wide open. And another funny thing, they come and the guards that are supposed to be watching the tomb are passed out on the ground. They're unconscious. And as they look into the tomb, they see a young man, an angel, just sitting there. Listen to his words in verse number 6. You see, Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified, He is risen. He is not here. Hallelujah. What an incredible promise that holds. He is alive. The tomb is empty. For in the resurrection, Jesus Christ, uh, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, lies a promise for every one of us that one day we too will be raised up to those who know Jesus Christ as Savior. If you're in here today, friend, and you've accepted Christ as your Savior, the death has lost its sting on you. Death cannot hold you forever. Uh, we will actually, uh, our souls will never die. It will just have a change of address when the time comes. 
But this promise that we see in the resurrection, death is no longer something that needs to be feared. Uh, Why do we fear when we have the promise that one day we'll live together forever in heaven with Christ? 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For in Adam we all die, and Christ we shall all be made alive. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why was the tomb empty? It was empty because Jesus was alive. The angel said, He is risen. That's the second empty promise that we have from Easter. Death has been defeated. You see, death is so cruel, it's harsh, it's terrible for us to go through. Last year, three in our church, dear men in our church, went home to be with the Lord. It's hard to go through death. It's hard to, uh, for those of us that are left. And this is what the disciples were feeling. They had seen their Lord that they, they had left everything to follow Him. And He was hanging on a cross and they were devastated. Death had crushed them. But if they would have just trotted back a little bit in their memories, they might have remembered something that happened just weeks prior. Jesus and them had went to a funeral of His friend Lazarus. And there they stood on the graveside of Lazarus. The Bible says in John 11 that Jesus even wept uh, because of the sadness of those around him. But as he stood beside the grave of Lazarus, this is what he said in John eleven twenty five: I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. What a promise. There's a story of a Muslim who became a Christian in Africa. His friends asked him, why would you become a Christian? And he says, well, it's like this. Suppose that you are going down the road and suddenly you find that the road forks in two directions and you do not know which way to go. There are two men there at the fork in the road. One is dead and one is alive. Which one would you ask for directions? Amen? Good point there. Our Savior is alive. There's over 300 verses in the Bible concerning the subject of Jesus Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus proves that death is not the end. It is not the end of our Savior. It is not the end of us. But that's not all. We have one more empty promise that I want you to know about Easter. And for that, turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. The book of John chapter 20. Parallel passage about the resurrection. We're going to look at verse number 3. John chapter 20. Verse number 3. After the angel... Uh, well, let's read first here, and then we'll talk about what the angel said. Verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 3, the Bible says, And Peter therefore went forth, and that, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. That other disciple was John. John, referring to himself, did that uh, just out of deference. And so they ran both together, verse 4, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. And then cometh Simon Peter, following him, went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, talking about John, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Now, I want to break this down, because there's some fascinating truths here. After the angel tells the women... They run back to the disciples and they tell them that the tomb is empty. With this incredible news, Peter and John race back to the tomb to see for themselves. 
Now, I have to stop here because I have to insert a joke. And I didn't write it, and I'm not tell it's in the Bible. This, this I find actually quite hilarious. Because if you've ever noticed, ladies, men will be men, amen? And men really aren't much different than just grown boys, if you notice that. I find it screamingly funny that here in this passage, talking about the resurrection, look at verse 4, John is writing, and he says that he and Peter ran to the tomb, and in the midst of this great important event, he adds, and I beat him. You see that? That's not all. Look down, look down in verse 8. He says, Then came also that other, which came first to the sepulcher. He, he binds again. Then I went to the, the one who beat Peter. I just think that's hilarious. But anyway, we move on. When they get there, John stopped just outside the tomb. This is very important to understand exactly what happened as I set the scene for you because we're going to see something pretty fascinating here. So they run to the tomb. John gets there first, but he doesn't go in. He stops, he stoops, he looks in. Meanwhile, Peter runs past John. He goes into the tomb. He starts looking around, and then John walks into the tomb. Remember that order as we go through and what happens here. Uh, we, they saw that the tomb was just the way the women said it was, empty. But that's not all. Inside the tomb, Peter found the clothes that Jesus had been buried in. They too were empty. This could only mean one thing. Jesus was alive. Think about it. If somebody would have come in and stolen the body, why would they have unwrapped Jesus and left the clothing? They would have just taken the body, uh, everything together. And so they, that wasn't what happened, though. These were here, and they were empty. Uh, something else was going on here that's important. John actually calls attention to this fact that the napkin used to cover his face and head uh, was folded neatly and laid to one side. In that is a message we don't want to miss. There's, this was a custom in that day concerning the napkin and let me explain. It's not so much something we do today, but this is very important for them in that day. A man with servants, as he would eat a meal, sometimes you have to step away to take a phone call, or you have to step away to use the facilities, or somebody calls at the house, or whatever it is. Uh, if you had to step up and away from the table for a moment, uh, and you were not done, you would fold your napkin neatly and set it down so the servants would know not to clear your plates uh, yet, because you're coming back. Uh, if you were done, then you would just wad the napkin up, you would throw it down in your plate, you would depart, and the servants would come clean it up. But it was a clear message when that napkin was folded, I'm not done yet, I'm coming right back. That was the message that we see in that folded napkin. When Peter and John came to the tomb, they feared the worst. Even Mary had missed the napkin, supposing, the Bible says in John 20:15 that the gardener had moved his body. But John was raised with servants, Mark chapter 1, verse 20. And so John would understand very well this custom. That's why the, that's why the Bible says in verse 8, when he saw it, he believed right away because he understood what this meant. Uh, now, it's instructive to dig into the original words sometimes uh, in the Bible and, and to see the, uh, what the Greek words mean because... If you've ever learned another language, English is my second language. I spoke Amish until I spoke English. And so I, knowing two languages, and if you know more than one language, you understand sometimes there are two words in another language that translate to only one in English. I'll give you an example. I think I've given you this before, but it's appropriate. In, in Amish, we have 
two words that translate only into one word in English. Uh, the English word is eat. Amish word, we have essa. That's what people do. I can run out of breath here. They're, uh, they'll, they'll eat too much of that double smoked ham. Somebody say amen. That was good stuff. Uh, but people, they essa. Now, when you're talking about a ravenously hungry dog or a bunch of hogs at the trough, it's fressa. So there's two different words. Now, in English, it's just eat. But in, in uh, Amish, there's those two different words. I got to tell you, not to be defensive, I saw both in action this morning. I'm just saying. Uh, I saw essa and fressa going on this morning. Uh, but here in the original language, we see different words. And I want to point them out to you. Verse 5, the word saw comes from the original word blepo. To take a glance at something, to perceive by the senses. What this word simply means, and this is what John did, looking in saw. He took a glance. He just took a quick glance. He just took a, a, a cursory glance, we would say. He saw Jesus was gone, but the grave clothes are still there. Looked in, looked back. Now, in verses 6 through 7, we have the word seeth. The word seeth comes from the original word theorio. This means to view mentally, to consider, to scrutinize. It carries the idea of looking around. It puts in your mind's picture Sherlock Holmes with a big old magnifying glass, looking around for clues. That's what this word means. This is what the Bible says Peter did. He stepped in, he was looking around, trying to find clues of what happened. He saw the grave closed in the napkin, lying by itself. Verse 8, the word saw is there again, but a different original word, this one is ido. This means to perceive, to discover, to know with understanding. Carries the idea of grasping what you see. John is what he did. He took a look. Have you ever done this before? Where you're maybe walking along or something and you do this and you look again? That's what John did. First he looked, then he looked. First he saw, then he saw. You know the difference. You've done that before. And this is what he did. He saw, he understood that Jesus was alive. And listen, friend, this morning you and I must accept the gospel message of the resurrection by simple faith. We did not see Jesus alive. We did not see him die. We did not see the tomb on that morning. However, that folded napkin is still preaching today. It's reminding each and every one of us this morning that even though we did not see him cannot see him right now. He's coming back again and we'll see him then. Revelation chapter 22 verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus left us, left us this assurance. Very soon uh, he'll return to take us home to be in heaven with him. In fact, he told us in John 14, 3, And I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, where I am, there you may be also. Because he lives... We have a future home in heaven. Think about it this morning, friend. The cross could not hold him. The tomb could not contain him. The burial clothes were not necessary because Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Amen. I want to ask you a very important question this morning. Do you know Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you know about him. I know a lot about Abraham Lincoln, but I don't know Abraham Lincoln. I'm asking if you know Jesus Christ. <coughs> uh, do you truly know him? You can, even this morning. You can know his love. You can know his care, his healing, and his forgiveness. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. Now it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. That first Easter Sunday, as the women went to the grave, they had no idea what would happen to them. They were not aware of the empty promises they were going to see on that day. Off in the distance stood an empty cross. That's the promise of our forgiven sins. They were heading toward an empty tomb. That's the promise of the resurrection that one day you and I will be also able to live forever with Him. Inside the tomb were empty burial clothes. This is a promise that He is living and He's coming back again for you and me. The promises they discovered that day, they can be yours just as well as they could be theirs. You too, you personally, can know the freedom of forgiven sins. You too can know the promise of having eternal life in heaven. You too can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Easter is a time of promises from empty things. Aren't you glad uh, for that? Easter is where the fears of Friday were turned into the security of Sunday and are transformed into the mission of Monday. Because the real story of Easter, friend, doesn't stop when you walk out the doors uh, after church today. Uh, the real story of Easter is what we do after we finish celebrating. It's what we do, what we take into our lives on Monday morning. Just as Christ's entire life leading up to the cross, His life continually every single day was emptying Himself. I need to learn to empty myself of self. I need to also learn uh, the only way I can impact anyone is to empty, uh, be empty of myself. Easter has some great promises uh, from, the, from the empty. It has a great promise from the empty cross, a great promise from the empty tomb, and a great promise from the empty grave clothes. Praise God. The question for you, friend, is these promises mean nothing if you don't claim them. They mean nothing. I mean, they're great head knowledge, aren't they? We can all say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, it's a great thing, the resurrection, we can rejoice together. But if you don't claim the promise of forgiveness, friend, it doesn't do you any good. Have you personally accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's the question today. What better day than Easter, and Resurrection Sunday, to accept His life, His death on the cross, for your payment, for your sins. Would you bow with me today, please? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want nobody looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's going to point you out. I promise I won't call you out. I'd just like to pray for you. If you're here this morning, friend, and you say, Preacher, I don't know. I don't know for sure that if something happened to me right now, I'd be in heaven. I don't know. I hope so, but I just don't know for sure.